The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. worship with the reading of the word and we're picking back up in our sermon series in the book of Acts chapter 5 and the believers and the apostles were gathered in the temple courts and they were ministering to the sick and the poor and the apostles were doing miraculous healings in the name of Jesus and for this they were imprisoned but they were miraculously released by the angels and so our story picks back up in Acts chapter 5 verses 21 through 32. They entered the temple courts at daybreak and began teaching. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force, because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning, everybody. It's rainy today, which is not uh, abnormal for our part of the world. This is an interesting story. We're back into Acts. We're going to pick it right up where we left off before Easter. The question I want to ask you this morning is, how would you feel about coming up here and sharing the gospel, telling people what you believe the gospel to be, why you believe it, what it's done in your life. Just thinking about that, standing up right here, right where I'm at, and just sharing the gospel as you see it and as it's impacted you, does that thought strike in your heart something like, oh gosh, I would love to do that? Or is it something more like, please don't call on me, please don't call on me, please don't call on me? There's something terrifying about that. I, if you ever watch me, oftentimes, as I'm about to come up and preach, I'll be sitting there rubbing my shoulders, because my professor once said, if you're about to go up and talk, you get tense in your shoulders, and it makes you have a shaky voice. So rub your shoulders down. It's scary. Standing up to preach freaks me out. I don't know why. I have a fear about it. And I keep praying to God, and I keep thinking, where is this fear coming from? And I'm standing in a room with Christians. Imagine sharing the gospel to a room of Christians. In and of itself, I think that that's terrifying. What if the people were folks you didn't know at all? Maybe Christian, maybe not. It starts to get more scary. What if you knew for a fact that your audience was anti-Christian? It gets a thousand times scarier then, doesn't it? You say, goodness, it'd be terrifying. I think in many cases, it is worse 
to be open and honest about what we are thinking, what we believe, than it is to put on a fake smile and sit quietly. Oftentimes it's better to just do that than to be open and honest about what we believe, what we think, how Jesus has impacted us because we say, I'll just raise a ruckus. I'll just smile nice and sit quietly. So that's the question I want to ask today, not just generally fear. We've talked about fear through this series and through the Gospels in the sense of fear of the, the overall brokenness of the world, but today specifically we hone it into fear about publicly living and breathing and speaking as Christians. Where does this fear come from? In my experience, we cannot speak often even in very small groups of people that we love and trust. Sometimes we tremble and sweat, our palms sweat, the thought of having to pray in front of other, other believers. I just don't want to mess it up. I don't want to say something dumb. We feel ashamed if we say something wrong. We don't want to have people think that we might not be smart. We don't want to say anything that might cause offense to somebody else. In our world today, there is no statement you can make that doesn't offend somebody. These walls are gray. I'm sorry if I've offended you. It's amazing. And so what do we do in our world? Hunker down, smile, and let the time pass. It has become very important for us. For some of us, it's become morally important to make sure that we never, ever upset the atmosphere of niceness. It's nice. It's peaceful. Don't upset it. This is the highest goal. If we could just be nice, nice to the world, nice to each other, nice and soft and cushy and sweet. To upset that has even become morally wrong to some of us. Sometimes as we preserve the family heirlooms and we straighten out the dining room doilies, we give up on a life of adventure we give up on a life with Jesus. We might be giving up on life altogether, protecting, preserving, and making sure we stay safe. Paul, the apostle, when he was writing to Timothy, a young pastor that he wanted to train, he said to Timothy, Timothy, you're going to need to know something if you're going to set out for life with Jesus. And that is, we are not called to a spirit of timidity and fear. There is no way you are going to honestly and truly live for Jesus in the way he built you to live if you embrace a spirit of timidity and fear. It's almost as though Paul is reminding him, if what we say we believe about the power of Jesus and the truth of the gospel, the indestructible nature of life in Christ, if we believe that that's true, then constantly being afraid, constantly being timid and fearful is incompatible with that. It's like saying you know your boat is truly unsinkable and then you never get in your boat because you're terrified of it sinking. What happens if some, oh yeah, my boat is unsinkable. Somebody's boasting and telling you, oh, my boat is the best. My boat is indestructible. Nothing could ever sink my boat. You sink my boat, it's going to rise right back up again. That's my boat. You want to get on it? No, 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 no. It's too scary. It just doesn't compute. It doesn't make much sense. Kind of like Peter. Not long after saying to Jesus, we remember this back from our Mark series. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter. You are the Christos. You are the Messiah. You know, it's a big moment for Peter. Not long after that, he's in a dark courtyard with the slave girl asking him who Jesus is. He's like, well, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know who that is. I'm the... I thought you thought he was the Messiah. You said that. Now you're afraid to be associated with him? 
incompatible. Peter recognizes that, doesn't he, later? And he says, what was I thinking? Peter has been changing, though, hasn't he? This Peter we see at the opening of Acts is not the Peter that we saw denying Christ in the courtyard right before the crucifixion. Peter's being transformed. He's grasping hold of the gospel for real. So turn to Acts 5. Maybe you're still there. I want to actually read a little bit right before the story that Mackenzie just read. The two are very closely linked. The story is strangely interesting. Start in verse 12. Acts 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all of the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch or portico, something like that. No one else dared join them, Peter and his crew, even though they were highly regarded by the people. (laughs) We kind of know that, you know, these guys are awesome. I don't want to be near them, though, because they're crazy. How do they do that? It's like Olympics athletes, you know. I think you're awesome. I don't want to do that, though. So they're they're, they're awesome. People love them, but they're like, I can't join that crew. I think probably because they are setting themselves up for real danger. So even though people don't want to join Peter and his crew, notice verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and they laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. It's amazing, isn't it? People being drawn in by the reality of healing and renewing. There's something inside of each of us, isn't there? The thought of being fully made whole, the disease inside me completely eradicated, the brokenness totally fixed, it's it's a draw. You're drawn to that kind of thing. Folks were so drawn to this, they're coming in hoping that Peter's shadow touches them. I don't know what to do with that, by the way. This is a one and done occurrence of that kind of miraculous thing. We see something like it in Acts 19, where Paul's They take handkerchiefs from Paul's body and lay them on sick people, and those people are healed. These are really interesting moments, and I don't know how to quite make sense of them. There's something going on here that's beyond my comprehension, but it's literally Peter's shadow runs across people, and they find healing. The word is out. Gathering crowds are amassing. Now, you might remember that Peter and his crew started this kind of ministry a while back. We're in Acts 5 now, but he's been doing this for a little while. And the directors of the temple, the big boys, the guys in charge, first kind of raise an eyebrow, and then their eyebrows furl, and they get mad, and they say, no more of that. We need to stop what you guys are doing. This is going to lead to no good. They have threatened them. You guys are raising a ruckus here. You need to cease and desist or else. They've warned Peter and his apostles, his team. Peter knows that they're not messing around. These guys don't just blow smoke. They just killed Jesus. (laughs) It's not like he wonders if they're really going to follow through on their threats. He knows that they are. In fact, he's accused them of doing so already with Jesus. He knows that they should probably pay attention to them. But I want to pause for a second and try to discern Peter, if you will. Think about the story we've been telling overall through the Gospels and up into here thus far. Let's draw a few conclusions about what is going on in Peter's mind as he faces these opposers, these guys who say, stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about the kingdom and the gospel the way that you have been. Well, here's one thing I think Peter knew for sure. He knew that Jesus had a choice between staying safe and experiencing brutal death. And for some reason, Jesus chose to experience brutal death. Why? I think an easy, kind of the low-hanging fruit is he died to save us from our sins. 
That's true, but why did they kill him in the spot? What would Jesus have had to do to not experience that death? I think all he would have had to do is stop doing what he was doing, right? It was what Jesus was doing that made people mad at him. What did they want him to stop doing? They wanted to stop proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the arrival of the kingdom, and all the things that he was teaching people. They wanted that to end. Jesus has a choice. I can end the ministry God created me to do, or put me in this world is a better way to say it, He put me in this world to do this mission, this ministry. I can stop doing that and stay safe. Or I can continue doing that because it means that I'm anchored into the life of God, and that's actually safe. Peter knows that Jesus faced this choice and chose the brutal death route, and it had everything to do with carrying on the mission. Peter knows that Jesus didn't choose to stay safe. There's no doubt in my mind that Peter was looking to Jesus' example and thinking to himself. Everyone I know is always trying to stay safe and secure. And so far, everyone I know goes into the grave and never comes back out. But then I met Jesus, and he was a truth teller. And he was a person who knew reality, the real gospel, the good news. And he knew that God was putting him into this world to speak openly and honestly about it, come what may. Peter knew all this stuff about Jesus. And although he was never safe, he did experience death, which is what we all fear the most, isn't it? Dying. He was put into a grave and he did come back out. We just celebrated that last week. This is the one. The resurrection is what changes everything. He comes out fully alive, fully restored, and mysteriously awesome. I've not known any other human being who did that, and especially after he made good on his promise to send the Holy Spirit post-Pentecost. Now, if I'm Peter, I'm really feeling emboldened. Do you and I feel emboldened in the gospel, emboldened in the Savior, are we, gosh, I hope people don't get mad at me. I hope the culture doesn't reject me. I hope I'm not misunderstood. Just be nice. It's amazing. By receiving the Holy Spirit and believing that he had been given the Spirit, Peter doesn't feel alone at all. He's not standing alone before the Sanhedrin or the Sadducees or the Pharisees. He's standing there with Almighty God. He's emboldened not because of his own willpower to be more bold. He's emboldened because he believes what Jesus has told him. The Spirit is going to be with you. Jesus did it, and he lost everything, including his heartbeat. And what looked like an ultimate loss was only temporary. God raised him from the dead, and I will follow him out of my own grave, which means I am done with being timid and shy. I am done with all of that blinding, enslaving fear that shackles most of the world. I love Peter. I think Peter's the guy I relate to the most. When I read Paul, I I don't relate to him as well. I'm more fumbling and bumbling like Peter. I kind of feel like I really get it half the time and then the other 99% of the time I don't. I'm not a math guy. <laughs> I, love, I love Peter. He goes from fear to strength, from panic to stability. He goes from a love for luxury to a love for life. He changes in these stories in the New Testament. I, I love it. And goodness, as Peter changes, and as people see it, they want to experience that same change. They want to see that same newness come to life in their own heart and soul, don't you? Don't you just long for that? The established systems of the world are just not doing it. They see something in what Peter and his apostles are doing, and they're drawn to it. 
they're drawn to it, even though he's a small crew sitting in the midst of a very large, very established system, the temple. You guys know the Schnitz downtown, yeah? The big music hall. Imagine that you run the Schnitz, and you've been running it for decades. I mean, it's the hub. It's the hub for concerts and entertainment. Thousands of people, day by day, week by week, year after year, are coming to the Schnitz for entertainment. Great music, plays, comedy shows, you name it. It's the place to go. Now, what happens when a little band sets up out on a street corner and they start playing music outside the Schnitz? Well, you know, little bands come and go. You're not too worried about it. It's not that big of a deal. But then the crowd starts to grow around them, and you start to pay a little bit more attention. Then the crowd starts to grow really big around them, and you're paying more attention. Then you start to notice that the seats in your own concert hall are starting to be empty. People are coming to see the little band on the street corner, and they're no longer coming into the schnitz. Then this continues to happen more and more, and then on a Sunday morning, the Oregonian comes out with the Sunday morning paper, and the headline is about the little band. You're no longer in the headlines. Somebody else is taking over. This, this young motley crew has now captivated everybody's attention. What are you feeling? You're feeling threatened. You're saying, somebody's got to stop these guys. They're disturbing the peace. Everything was good. They're, they're raising a ruckus here. We got to stop them. I think something like that is at play after Pentecost. Peter and his fellow apostles might have been a whole lot safer if they just stayed in Troutdale, you know, or better yet, Corbett up in the gorge, like Jesus. Go up to Galilee. It's wide open up there. Last thing, it, it got real hot for Jesus when? When he rolls into the temple. Where's Peter doing all the stuff we've been reading so far? Right there in the heart of Jerusalem. So he's really in their face, and he's not near the temple, he's in it. He's on the premises of the temple. And now to get this, you have to remember, the temple is not a single building, right? It's a 35 to 40 acre huge space, it's a region, it's a, it's a part of the city, it's got its own zip code. There is a temple building. But there's lots of other buildings all around, and it's totally walled, and there's bridges going up to it, all this kind of stuff. And around some of those walls are these huge, massive, I hate to use the word porch, because I think of like the deck outside my house or something, but huge spaces covered uh, with big roofs, columns coming down, holding the roofs up, and people would teach and preach and hang out there and do lots of things related to the temple. So he is in the heart of the temple, drawing these crowds around him. And it's getting tumultuous. Life and light and love, these things are very disruptive in the stable, safe, well-protected corridors of darkness that have been falsely, biblically ordained. Life and light and love, those are disruptive in a place that has found a safety in darkness and then ordained that darkness with the Bible. And he's bringing life and light and love into the temple, which should be all of those things, should receive him wholeheartedly but a darkness has been woven into the fabric of life there. And it's very disruptive to have Peter and his friends there. People sit orderly and quietly in the well-protected corridors of darkness that religious power mongers create. The thought of saying something wrong, the thought of being seen as foolish, it's absolutely terrifying in that kind of world. They tremble and they sweat. 
They embrace timidity, and they simply do what the authorities command. In fact, in those dark corridors, people lose their ability to be their own human beings. They just want somebody to tell them what to do. It works. It works for control. It works for stability. It works for keeping the peace, if you even want to call it that at this point. But it seems to work up until precisely the point when people are actually exposed to real life. And then real life becomes a lot more sweeter. Life within the light of Jesus. Peter's small community, his group of apostles, ministers, if you will, are bringing an adventure to town. It's a new life, and it's a certain kind of light. It's a kind of love that folks appear to be irresistibly drawn to, a gift, an irresistible grace, if you will. The apostles and Peter are talking, yes. They're saying things, yes. It's important to lock that into our hearts and minds. Yes, they're speaking boldly, and they're doing more than just speaking boldly. They're acting and living in a certain way. They're healing people miraculously and in some confusing, like the shadow thing, and, and some very beautiful ways. They're bringing healing to the community. I think there's an important clue here, and we need to identify it. And we need to really own this as a community if we're going to grasp hold of what is happening here, the deep meaning of the gospel. These healings that we see happening from Peter and his crew are not simply an expression of care toward the poor. Are they that? Yes, they are. But they're more than that. The point was not to provide as much urgent medical care as possible to as many people as possible. Because we now have some kind of new spiritual medicine that works better than the old medicine, you see. They didn't just come in and say, our goal is to heal as many people as possible. The healings that these apostles did were much like the healings that Jesus did. They're very generous, they're very bold, but they're also very specific. Don't you ever wonder when Jesus is healing people why he heals one person in the crowd and the thousands others that are there don't get healed? Are we to believe that all those other thousands were already perfectly healthy? I seriously doubt it. It raises this question for us. We see the heart of God and his desire to renew and restore and heal, and yet the apostles and Jesus never just come in and heal everybody. If the goal is healing everybody, I think they all fail pretty miserably. And I think this, if that becomes our goal, then we lose sight of Jesus and we enter into a defeating cycle of never enough. Don't you feel that way? Somebody says to you, hey, as Christians, we need to bring healing to planet Earth. You're like, oh, gosh. <laughs> okay, uh, my own family is struggling right now. <laughs> the whole planet is a bit much. And then we just sort of check out. We're like, well, I don't know. I can't do that. And we enter into that. So some will set out anyway and say, we can do it. But it's just never enough. So we get into a bit of a pickle if we think that these miraculous healings are calling us to somehow solve the medical problems of, of all of humanity. I don't think that's what they're saying. Healing is a way of Christian life more than it is an, a, a task to accomplish. Does that make sense? Your, your call that you read, you see, you say, well, I don't have, I mean, here's my shadow. We could try. If you're sick, come stand in it. We'll see if you get better. I don't think you will. <laughs> I'll just say that. I don't have a healing shadow. It would be awesome if I had a healing shadow. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. But I don't. So I asked myself, okay, God gave that to Peter in his day, and Peter used it in his way. Has God given me the capacity to bring healing into somebody else's life? Can I be a voice of renewal, a voice of encouragement? Just with my words, what about with my money? 
What about with my home and my extra bedroom? What about with my food and the other nutrition stored in my freezer and refrigerator and pantry? Can I actually be a healing presence in my neighborhood to my neighbors? I don't have to solve the problem of of everybody, but am I willing to live the Christian way, which is a way of bringing life to those around you? These new Christians with Peter were saying, because we actually believe in Jesus, we trust that he was not lying when he said his kingdom of true life and newness was at hand. He was being serious. To belong to that kingdom then means we're going to be that kind of people. Not people of this present age, which is decaying and deteriorating, but people of the new age, which is an age of life and renewal and goodness. Which life am I living within? I think Christians are doing a work of new creation in the real world, not just reading about it in books and looking on maps for where we should send others. We're actually willing to minister to our neighbors in that way. You've missed a huge point if you've thought that the world is in maps and in books. And what are we doing? Well, we're tightly bound to new creation, helping people become the human beings that we were all meant to be. Yes, we are mending bodies that live within the original creation, but the point of public miracles is to demonstrate that something new is happening now. They've all been walking through life for some time. Now when Peter and the boys start to heal, they're saying, this is a break. Something new is happening now. And this really makes sense if resurrection is real. We can say the same thing in the opposite way to see it more clearly. So hear it this way. If resurrection is not real, then it makes a lot of sense to be extremely cautious and to be very protective and very defensive and very afraid of breaking away from the social norms and patterns. Why? We want to we wanna protect our family heirlooms. We want to make sure that those doilies are straightened. We want to protect, conserve, shelter, stay back, because resurrection's not real. This is the best we've got. Make it as good as you can. You've got one shot at life. The worst experiences you can have then are being falsely accused, misunderstood, losing property, losing status, losing your ability to earn. Those become terrifying when resurrection is not real. So when it's not real, you become closed off. You become nervous. You start to embrace a spirit of timidity. And the big goal is to conserve and protect what you have left before it's all over. That's the heart and mind of somebody who doesn't really believe in resurrection. Dallas Willard is a spiritual formation guy. I love to read him. And he says, conviction is when you know something that you don't yet believe. I think for a long part of my life, I knew the gospel, but I didn't believe it. I'll let you think on that for a couple weeks. Conviction. If you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you as we read this story, it's because you know that life with Jesus is legit. Come hell or high water. But you don't yet believe it. Because of resurrection, Peter and his fellow Christians appear to be non-anxious. They know that by standing there in Solomon's portico or his porch in the temple, preaching what they're preaching, they are asking for a straight-up death sentence. This is capital punishment. They know it's just happened to Jesus. Rather than asking, however, is this safe, the governing question of their life is, is this what God wants us to do? What's the question that we're answering in our own life? I think the culture around them is looking at their love and generosity and especially their religious behavior and it's saying, man, this is new. This is not that old, self-righteous, judgmental, burdensome way that others have shown us. This is about becoming new. 
This is about love and community. This is better. Peter and his team, therefore, I believe, were raising a gospel ruckus. They're bringing the truth of love and life to a place that didn't know it, and it just stirred things up in a weird way, but a beautiful way. Where are we today as a community? Are we willing to raise a gospel ruckus in this sort of way? Not going out and trying to figure out how to be offensive so that everybody can be mad at us, and then, and then we say, oh, good, we're doing the right thing. That's not the goal here. Are we willing to be so loving and so generous and so forgiving that even some Christian brothers and sisters will look at us and say, you're out of line? Are we willing to disrupt that equilibrium of niceness to trade it in for real life? You can bet that as people watched their sick and broken friends being healed, they could see that God was not just stoked about bringing healing. They could see he was capable of doing it. That's the miracle thing. It's, it's more than talk. Hey, our God is a God of healing. Oh, yeah? Does he actually have the power to do it? Yeah, he does. Step in my shadow. <laughs> Whoa, it's awesome. And in this case... God wanted to show them he could do this by working through Peter and his team. Well, all right. As we've already said and read, these power guys in the temple are really torqued off. So Peter and company get locked up. When I was in uh, Jerusalem a year ago, I got to see one of these kind of jail cells. It might even be that they lowered him down into a pit. There's this one big cathedral that has a picture of Jesus when they had him locked up. And it's Jesus dangling from a loop rope because they would put a big loop of rope over your, under your armpits and then lower you down into this limestone pit. And we got to go down inside one of them and then the gate was up top. It was like a double protection. To break out, you would have to climb up. So it could have been that, it's that those jail cells still exist right outside the old city. I'm not sure exactly where he is, but they lock him up. Deep stone pit, locked up, there's shackles. Somehow he's secured by the powers that be. And then, at night, an angel of the Lord comes. Uh, this is always ambiguous to me. I, I always wonder when I read that language in the Bible, what is this angel of the Lord like? It gets used a lot. One of the things, though, however ambiguous the angel of the Lord is, they generally come with some kind of message, okay? So at night, the angel of the Lord comes. I wonder what Peter, he's sitting there in the jail cell. He's probably dirty. I wonder if he's frustrated or he's probably remembering fishing on Galilee. That was better. And then... The angel comes to him, and the angel lets him out of jail. I, just, I want to know how that happened. Pick the lock. He lets him out of jail, and then he says this to Peter. He says, here's the message from God. I want you to go straight into the temple courts. Peter's like, oh, cool. I've been doing that. I want you to go straight into the temple courts like you've been doing and stand there and tell all of these people the message about this life. And Peter's like, oh, gosh, that's your advice, huh? That's what got me locked up here. Here's what I want you to do, Peter. I know you got locked up for talking about the gospel and about the life of Jesus. And I think when he says about this life, he means about this salvation, this rescue. He says, I did all that, and that's what got me locked up here, and now you want me to go do all that again. But I guess it's probably not that scary if the angel is letting you out. It's kind of like, well, what's the worst that could happen? I'll have an angel let me out of jail again. He's talking about this salvation. Go to the temple, not to the outside of the temple or anywhere else, to the heart and talk about this salvation. Maybe he's saying, Peter, I'm letting you out so you can keep on doing what you've been doing. Early in the morning then after this angelic jailbreak, they follow the orders and they start teaching people in the temple again. The Sanhedrin guys are sitting there finishing their coffee. They're probably waking up and thinking, okay, 
Now we got to go deal with these rebel apostles we locked up last night. Go get them out of jail. And they go, and they're not in jail. They're not in the, in the, in the cell. Everything seems to be intact. They're looking for a broken bolt or some hammer marks. They bring the CSI unit in, and there's no evidence anywhere. What happened here? And then they hear, well, you guys are looking for those guys? They're up in the temple again. What are they saying? The same crap they've been saying for the last several weeks. What? They're back up there saying that same stuff? You've got to be kidding me. Luke says that however mad they were, they still knew that they had to be careful about the crowds. Here they are, just like they were upset with Jesus and they wanted him out. They said, we've got to take this guy out silently under wraps because all the crowds love him. Now the same problem is with Peter. And they say, these crowds are going to riot. We can't publicly arrest them because the crowds love them. Luke wants us to see their character. Notice verse 26. They were afraid. Here they are, the religious power brokers, and really the government of the city and the nation. They're afraid of being stoned by these people. And that doesn't mean the same thing it does in post-legalization Oregon. It's a different stoning. There's Peter standing boldly for Jesus in this in-your-face kind of way. And he says, in Jesus, I think he's saying, in Jesus, I have no more fear. I don't have that spirit of timidity. Getting arrested by these people, these are the people who are cowering in fear. Sometimes I think that fear is closely tied to a misunderstanding of the gospel. Especially here in our American church, our modern church, we have been for some time obsessively, compulsively focusing so much on future in heaven that we kind of think God is going to be with us there and forget he's with us here. We get so excited about how God's going to change us in the future, sometimes obsessively so, we kind of lose hope for transformation right now. We just say, oh, well, that'll happen when I die. So then I have to stand up to talk about Jesus on my own. And that's scary. I have to do it alone. And then all the things that might happen are exponentially more terrifying. Because I'm not really very strong. I'm not emboldened. I'm just weak little old me with my weak little old brain. And the quizzes that I failed. And all the stuff that tells me I should be ashamed of myself. That's, that's who's, if, I, if that guy has to stand up and share the gospel, then guess what I'm going to do? Just going to smile and nod and hope that the time passes. The high priest is stating the facts about the previous hearing. He comes to them and he says, we told you to cease and desist before. You can read that in chapter 4. They had blatantly violated his order. They said, we know you told us to stop doing that. We're not going to, though. Verse 28 of our, of our chapter here. They say, we gave you strict orders to stop teaching in Jesus' name, but look at what you've done. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and even worse, you're trying to bring this man's blood upon us. This last phrase is, is to lay blame on somebody else for another one's death. This is not a casual accusation. It's massive. For Peter to try to lay blame on them, and that is exactly what he's done. This is a serious charge. Peter is in real danger here, real danger. Peter told these rulers in Acts 4, verses 10 and 11, it is your fault that the Messiah died. That's on you. We even know that Roman centurions are the guys who technically killed Jesus, but Jesus says it's your fault. And he doesn't say Jewish nation, it's your fault. He says Jewish leadership team, it's your fault. You guys have done this. And these men... They have the power to command armies. They have the power to command the police. 
They have the power of the government on their side. They have all of the things we crave. They have the law, the power, the enforcement. They have cash. They have everything that should make them feel safe. And they are the ones Luke talks about as being, as having a phobos, a phobia, a fear. They're filled with fear. Peter's life is rooted in God's life. Their life is rooted in their own best plans for their own life. And their life is filled with fear. Peter's life is not. So the same Peter who couldn't even handle the thought of being publicly accused as one with Jesus prior has been changed now to the point where he says, do what you need to do. We must obey God. We must obey God rather than people. Someone must have murmured in the crowd, how can this man be so stupid? Doesn't he know he's going to get killed for this? But because Peter says, I can do this because the God of our forefathers raised up Jesus. The resurrection is why Peter can do this. Whom you seized and killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to the right hand as the leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I think he's sort of half grinning here, okay? I can do this because of the resurrection and what has happened. I've never seen a uh, Sadducee or a Pharisee or anybody in the Sanhedrin guy raised up and exalted to the right hand of God. Have you? You know, you could just kind of see him. I'm sure he's messing with them. Yeah, says Peter in verse 32, we are witnesses of these events and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter has said the resurrection makes this possible and I am not alone. The Holy Spirit of God is with me. It's bold. He's healing in the streets and outside of the temple. All of their mindset has been the Spirit of God is only in the temple. Peter says, if you obey God now, the Spirit is with you. You're not alone. Fear is born from a sense of being alone. And a sense that something very valuable or very important might be lost. Let's say we are all living in deep fear today in modern America. We have come to a point where even in our smallest groups, we don't want to speak even about simple things because we don't want to get it wrong. I have teach over at the school next door and I've had classes where I ask people to just read a passage out of the Bible and it'll be quiet. Nobody wants to get it wrong. Just reading the, the verse. We don't want to share the gospel because those words, share the gospel, are ambiguous and they suggest that we're supposed to be highly educated in the scriptures and that we're supposed to share it with the whole planet. And so we say, well, I don't have a PhD and I don't have unlimited miles, so I'm going to just be quiet about it. We've come to a place where we would rather send a friend a link to a sermon than we would talk to that friend about our life with Jesus. What if sharing the gospel includes both things that we see Peter doing in this story? What if we said something like, I know that if I lived 10,000 years in a row, I would still not have a perfected theology or a super excellent way to share the gospel, but that's okay. Jesus is with me, like he was with Peter through the Holy Spirit, who is with me. And sharing the good news about Jesus' kingdom, sharing about how it's growing and taking root in our world, it's worth talking about more than probably any of the other stuff I chit-chat about. It will be an adventure. And that means it'll be painful and there will be suffering included, but it will be a life of love and faith and hope instead of cowering and anxiety and terror. There's this moment, and we'll close here. There's a moment at the beginning of Tolkien's story, The Hobbit. Gandalf is challenging. You might remember this. It's, such a, it's just a profound moment. Gandalf is challenging Bilbo to accept this chance he has to go 
on a great adventure. And Bilbo says, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. Just let me sit quietly here for a moment. Just let me sit quietly for a moment. And Gandalf says, You've been sitting for far too long. Tell me, when did doilies and your mother's dishes become so important to you? I remember a young hobbit who was always running off in search of elves in the woods. He'd stay out late and come home after dark, trailing mud and twigs and fireflies. A young hobbit who would have liked nothing better than to find out what is beyond the borders of the Shire. The world is not in your books and maps. It's out there. Go and stand in the temple courts. Go and stand in the public square. Go and stand in your kitchen and in your hallway at school and in the locker rooms and on the factory floor and in the break room. Go and stand and proclaim to all of the people in your life the words of this life, of this salvation, of life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for life. And we acknowledge that we live in a very interesting time in the history of church and life with you as people. And I think it's no different than any generation. We desperately need you to stay with us and be present with us clearly and powerfully. And then sometimes I think you are, and we're just not paying attention to you or listening to you. Help us become a people who can discern the difference between those two and to come out as a group who's tightly bonded to you and who is daily shedding fear, who embraces a way of life that is, that is a kind of life that brings health and well-being to those around us, living for the kingdom, living for you as gospel people, good news people. We need your strength. We need your presence. We need you. And we love you. And we do trust you with all of our heart. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.